Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. And welcome in. It's another edition of Mile High Magazine. I am Murphy Houston. And today we're uh, talking with our friends from the National Brain Tumor Society. Tasha DeCock, who's the Regional Director of Development of the Brain Tumor Society, is with us. Tasha, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And we're going to talk with a, a good mom, Leslie Phelps, who's here to talk about your son who's gone through a brain tumor situation. Isn't that right, Leslie? That is true. Well, yes. we'll talk about that. We're going to come up. And thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Well, I know it's not going to be easy, but you're going to help a lot of people today, and that's why we're here. And Tasha, maybe people don't know much. I mean, you hear a lot about breast cancer and heart association, but not much about the National Brain Tumor Society. So why don't you just open it up and tell us what you're all about? Well, the National Brain Tumor Society is the um, largest nonprofit dedicated to the brain tumor community. Um, we fund research and something else that we do that's a very, very big part of what we do is we help with advocacy. And and how do you how do you do that with with money or so uh, awareness? So, so we fund research. Um, we are. M- a major part is we go to D.C. and we speak with our Congress members. We help train volunteers, families, uh, brain tumor patients to go and speak with their legislators. And we try to um, help form policy and get more funding to help brain tumor patients and families. And what kind of reaction do you get? Do you personally go to Washington? Have you done that? I have not done it. Um, I have. I work with advocates all over the country that do go and do it. Um, it's it's a little bit more successful if you have personal stories and sure. people that have been sure. touched by the disease themselves. And do you find that to be effective? Has that helped? Uh, oh, yes. Yes. The- we've, um, we've been a significant part of uh, getting more NIH funding and, and helping move the needle a little bit more toward trying to find better treatments and a cure. And do you raise money for like research? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's got to be a lot of re- all these nonprofits that have research projects and you must have some. We, we, I wouldn't necessarily speak to the research projects that we fund, but um, we do fund doctors and institutions all over the country that um, another cool thing that we do, and I think it's very, very important, is that we we bring collaboration together. Um, one of the biggest parts and problems of any disease and finding a cure is getting the doctors to talk and the scientists to speak to each to other, each other. That's and, share, <laughs> and share their information. Well, so, that is so true. We, we bring them together. Um, we have different events across the country that we bring them together and let them share their information. Um, last year, we had a, a really big year in the brain tumor community. <clears throat> Excuse me. We uh, basically, we're, we're learning how the tumors are structured. And once you learn how they're structured, you can come up with more personalized treatments, uh, just in the last 40 years, we've only had three FDA-approved drugs and one device, and um, that's not a lot. No, not not a lot at all. And when you say how they're structured, explain that to, to the <laughs> – I mean, you're talking physically how it's structured in the brain? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of – you have to learn what the makeup is and what feeds them right. and what makes them grow. And so we're learning that, uh, you know – Brain tumors are not genetically passed on, but we are getting better at identifying those genomes that show us early on 
um, if there's a malfunction going on. And they're not always cancerous. They could be benign no, tumors, they correct? Can be benign. Mm-hmm. And I would think that the location of that brain tumor is critical. Yes. You know, I, I'm not a neurosurgeon, but I know that that's one of the obstacles in, in a series of obstacles when it comes to treating these, these types of tumors. Well, Tasha, you've been working with them for how long? I've been with the National Brain Tumor Society three years in July. Have you seen a lot of progress in three years? Um, as far as research and, and, and awareness? Yes, yes. I think that, you know, we're definitely not uh, where we need to be as far as awareness goes, but we're we're moving the dial. Um, brain tumors are the number one cancer-related killer of children under 19. They've I didn't know surpassed that. leukemia. Really? Um, so to me, as a new mom, uh, I know that it's it's even more important that no families have to go through this. Well, maybe that's the time we should talk to Leslie a little <laughs> bit here. That's kind of a nice segue right there. And I know Leslie uh, Leslie Phelps, uh, your son. How old is your son? He just turned three. Three years old. What's his name? Luke. I love that name. Luke Phelps? Are you Luke kidding Phelps. me? <laughs> He'd be playing for the Rockies. He does. He sounds, like a, he sounds like a star. Well, I appreciate you coming in today. Thank you. And I can tell you you're a loving, caring mom and, and, and tell you, tell us your story a little bit. Tell, what, what happened? Three years old. That just doesn't seem right. Yeah. Um, you know, when he was, when he was super little, he never learned to walk. And so around 12 months, the pediatrician thought something was a little weird. So we were looking into, um, some PT for him, but at 15 months, he, um, around August 1st, he woke up one morning and vomited for no reason. And, you know, I'm a mom of three and he's my littlest. So I didn't think much of it. Oh yeah. Um, you know, we moved on with our day. He played, he was fine, but that continued. So that was on a Monday morning and then it happened Tuesday and Wednesday of that week. And at that point I'm like, something's not totally right. So we called our pediatrician and she saw him Thursday of that week and ran a bunch of tests, asked a bunch of questions and nothing popped up. She couldn't figure out what was going on. So her plan was to wait just a couple more days over the weekend check in on Monday morning and see how he was doing, how the weekend go. And so Monday morning um, comes and over the weekend, he had lost a lot of his mobility. Really? Yes. He was a kind of crawling, um, but he had gotten to the point where he wouldn't be able to support himself to sit up anymore. And I just, again, kind of blamed it on being lethargic and being sick and just wanting to cuddle. But he was kind of like a noodle in your arms. And so Monday morning, she called us super early and asked us to go ahead and go down to Children's Hospital at the Anschutz Center and have a a CT of his head. And we got down to the emergency room, and within 30 minutes, they came in the room and handed us a picture of his MRI with an egg-sized tumor in his brain. Oh, my gosh. What was that like? Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm tearing up thinking about that day. We're he, all going to tear up. I can't even imagine. And he's three at he's this? three Not, now. Three he now. was 15 months oh, old. Oh, my gosh. So he, you know, wasn't talking. He wasn't walking. He was just laying in our arms. And my husband and I looked at each other, and it was just instantly like our lives flipped upside down. The amount of people in our tiny little room in the ER was overwhelming with social workers and the neurosurgeon and um, the oncology team. It was it that was quickly, they were, they, that were, quickly. They, were, they were with you. They were there that that's, fast. That's a great story Within about children. a couple of hours. Oh, my gosh. I could go on and on about children's. Um, and so that day they admitted us immediately. We um, He got started on a course of hydration and steroids. 
um, to reduce the swelling in his brain, uh, which had been causing the vomiting. Sure. And so that that helped that. But um, two days later, he was taken in for a seven-hour surgery on his brain. And we are extremely lucky where the tumor was. I know you mentioned that earlier. Uh, Yeah, well, I just had read that it's critical, the location of the tumor. Because some places you can't operate, I would imagine. Um, They were worried that it would be partly attached to his brainstem. Yes. And if that would be the case, which it wasn't, he would have lost, who knows, I mean, permanent mobility or cognitive problems. Wow. So we were lucky with that. They were able to resect 90% of the tumor safely. Um, We stayed in the PICU at Children's for a week. While he recovered, he had a drain coming out of his head to relieve spinal fluid because it wasn't able to. How long was that? How long was the drain? How long were you in the PICU? Uh, We were in the PICU for a week after surgery, and then we got moved up to the sixth floor, which was like a recovery. We were there for a total of 19 days. Wow. From the day we found out we had the tumor, then 19 days later we were able to go home. He didn't have to have a shunt. That was a concern because he wasn't properly draining his spinal fluid. But he was able to, the very last minute before they decided to put a shunt in, he showed that he could drain it on his own, thankfully, because there's a lot of problems with that. Yeah, I can imagine. 15 months? Come on. Yeah. So they removed the drain and we went home. And a few days later, we were back. He had to have a port put into his chest because his tumor was cancerous. Wow. So that was another couple hour surgery to get um, that put in. And then a couple days after that, we started chemo, and he had a course of three rounds of chemo. Each round lasted three weeks, and that included a week worth of receiving the chemo and then two weeks for recovery before the next round would start. Wow, that's that's difficult in an adult. I mean, yeah. I've been through that with my wife, and it each one gets harder. Each, and you have no idea until you're in the thick of it. Right, you do not know. No. You, and everybody's different. So now you're dealing with a 15-month-old son. I I don't even know how you do that. I mean, uh, it was good. a lot of laying in hospital beds and oh. cuddling him and watching TV shows that he would like and trying to find food that he would want to eat. And it was just everything was 100% about him. Wow. It had to be. So let's fast forward. How are things going? Oh, my gosh. So um, now he's completely off meds and he is a survivor. And he's walking, thankfully, and almost running and just turned three and a normal little kid. He had um, some hearing loss, so he does wear hearing aids. Yeah. Um, but he's been cancer. He's been in remission. They don't call it cancer free till five years, but he's been in remission yeah. for a little over a year. Wow. But he had a he had a very rough go at it. He had um, after the three rounds of chemo, then he had three more rounds of high dose chemo that included stem cell transplants. Wow. And that third round of stem cell transplants landed him in the PICU with complete organ failure. You're kidding. And he was, um, he, he had code blues. He was, he was near death several times. Oh my goodness. And by some miracle, those doctors figured out what was wrong with him and they brought him back. Well, they're pretty hardcore over there too. Yeah. hospital. I, Just a little. Yeah. I do a lot of work over there with those guys and you see how they, you go, Wow. They're top shelf. Yeah. They were in and out of his room, I mean, 12, 15 hours a day. I don't think that they went home to sleep until they knew he was okay. How did you and your husband handle all this? you got two healthy children at home, correct? We do. My uh, sister and brother-in-law live super close. They also have two kids, so they took ours in 
for that nine months that we went through this. Thank God for family. No, oh, you can't yeah. tell me. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, really. So yeah, my 14 year old and my 11 year old, I would FaceTime them at night and say goodnight and lie to them about how their brother was doing because they didn't need to know. <laughs> Start to choke <laughs> up a little bit. Um, wow. So they kept on with school and they both got straight A's and continued with their sports and everything. They were amazing. It's a God thing. I believe that. And he'll be fine. You got great care. We have to believe that. We have to believe that. Well, Leslie, thank you for sharing. Thank you. Give old Luke a hug when you get oh, home. Oh, you know you? I will. <laughs> I mean, really, that's uh, something I can't even relate to. I would imagine a lot of us listening now cannot relate to that. We're blessed with healthy kids and healthy grandchildren. You know, have a few bumps in the road, but not. Sure. That's an explosion in the road, which you went through. Completely unexpected. Completely. Well, congratulations on your strength. What's your husband's you. name? Dan. Dan. Way to go, Dan. <laughs> Good job, buddy. Not so sure I could do it. Uh, that's Leslie Phelps. Um, she's talking about, obviously, her son Luke and their experience. And now you're active with the uh, the Brain Tumor Society. Yeah. Tasha reached out to me and asked if I'd be a part of it this year, and I would love to keep being a part of it. Absolutely. So you're involved with the walk coming up. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Our... I've been asked to be a guest speaker at the walk. I know. Well, if you speak like this, <laughs> there's not enough tissue in the city oh, that's right. going to handle that. Jeez. And I know you were worried about this, but you did a great job. Thank you. Congratulations on your strength. Thank you. I, my mom's always had the strength, don't they? Yeah. You know, I'd it's be fitting like, since Mother's Day was just. Like, yeah, <laughs> I was going to bring that up. How was Mother's Day? Oh, so good. Three healthy kids. Amazing. Yeah, that's a, makes it really special. Whole new meaning. It? Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Well, with us also is the boss over there at uh, National Brain Tumor <laughs> Society, Tasha DeCock, Regional Director of Development of the National Brain Tumor Society. So let's talk more about the society and how it differs from other nonprofit organizations. You started kind of alluding to that a little bit before we uh, talked to Leslie, but tell us more. Well, so we, like I said before, um, we believe in collaboration. We believe believe in moving the needle faster Uh the only way that we're going to find a cure is if we get these folks talking. Um, another big part of that is funding. And, you know, we are driving Congress and, and public policy to try and fund more of this research and, and give more to the brain tumor community and their patients. It always takes money. And it always, mm -hmm. when you're dealing medical, a lot of money. And I've run into that experience with other nonprofits we've talked to. When you say, is there a cure? I mean, you mentioned cure. There can't be a cure. There's not a cure. No. Um, there is no cure. You know, we have a standard of care that we have for brain tumor patients, but, you know, it's it's incurable. Um, you know, we can remove the tumors. We can shrink the tumors. We can do all of these things. But at the end of the day, there is not a cure. And, um, you know, that's what we're out there trying to find our our organization uh, collaborates with some of the most amazing neuro-oncologists, scientists, and doctors across the country. And, you know, we we fund very specific and um, very, I guess, groundbreaking research. That's a um, that's good kind term, of, groundbreaking. You know, we're, we're, yeah. we're trying to, you know, what we go after, we use a panel of um, – a scientific advisory panel to decide what different projects we're going to fund. But, <clears throat> excuse me, our goal is to, to you know, we don't just write blank checks. We want to have targeted research. Sure. 
Yeah, because money's rare. You better make it work. Exactly. You don't want to waste it. Can you talk more about people out there maybe don't know how to diagnose a brain tumor? Leslie mentioned her young boy was vomiting, and then they determined the cause. But there's got to be other ways to diagnose brain tumors and maybe for big key symptoms, wouldn't there be? Well, I mean, really the only accurate way to diagnose a brain tumor is an MRI. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we can't detect brain tumors quickly because we can't open up our head and, no. and look inside and and see what's what's going on in there. Um, you know, I I would say that you are your biggest advocate. You are your your family's biggest advocate when it comes to health. And if you know something's wrong, you be relentless in that effort. Um, I've, I've heard of doctors, you know, like in her situation that had a hunch and it was right and it was quick and, and to the point, but there are some situations I've heard of where people have to really advocate for themselves to their doctors because it's hard to get, you know, a doctor to sign off on a procedure like an MRI. Uh, insurance companies sometimes have issues with paying for that. And so well, it's... Well, they're expensive. Exactly. MRIs can be thousands and thousands and of so dollars. you have to really advocate for your health and your family's health. And when you know something's wrong, I think that's the biggest thing. You've, you've got to be proactive. Exactly. So if you have symptoms, I mean, sometimes we get headaches. Sometimes... Sure. You do vomit. Sure. Sometimes your ears might ring. I don't know if those are symptoms or not, but I would think you don't want that to go on too long. Leslie, that was your experience. I mean, you were on it. Well, and I have to throw a <coughs> huge shout out to our pediatrician because I had read um, while he was going through treatment how many moms and dads have to push so hard to get their pediatrician to go um, looking at the head with the issues that Luke presented, the symptoms that he presented with, they often go with a with a stomach bug, and they continue to go on gastro and and enterology, however you say that word. Sure, they end up going down the stomach route and trying to figure out all these different tests, and they do scans on the stomach, and they think, oh, he's vomiting, it must be the stomach, and they tr they avoid the head when when they know it's because it's so expensive. And she didn't. She said, let's see how the weekend plays out, and boom, Monday morning. She's like, don't waste time, get down there. Your pediatrician was on it. She's amazing. Yeah, that's that's quite a story in itself. Yeah. And an awareness for parents right now to yes. be thinking about and that. And advocate. I mean, through this whole thing, I, I got that thick skin. That mama bear came out fast. Oh, kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's true with probably any kind of situation with dealing with your health. For sure. You're, it's you yeah. or a family member. You need to get out there and be the advocate to get yes. that taken care of. And please look a little further than what you're doing right, right. now. And with a brain tumor, I would think, Tasha, that really requires a push. Well, you know, it's, it's not real common. Is that brain tumors aren't real common, are no, they? No, it's um, it's actually one of one of the highest per patient ex cancers to um, pay for. It's expense wise, very very expensive. Um, but it is also one of the least common. And so, you know, one of the things that you have to think of is that. A lot of times these patients don't find out something is wrong until it is affecting motor functions and and stomach issues and balance and things of that nature. People have seizures. Um, you know, it's not something that, you know, you, you don't go in for a yearly exam and it's detected because, you know, you have to wait for it to unfortunately grow in size to where it is affecting these different 
parts of your body, and and that's when people draw attention to it. And when you get to that point, can you go back and be healthy, or is it too late? I mean, if you wait till you're having seizures, or there's some kind of a situation that you physically can't walk, like little Luke, you know, all of a sudden couldn't crawl anymore, couldn't sit up. Well, but his symptoms didn't show up till his tumor was the size of an egg either. Yeah, so there's no way it. a healthy 15-month-old kid, we wouldn't just routinely take him in for a head scan. So, no. you know, and there's a lot of kids that don't walk till after a year old. And so he was just kind of put in that category of meeting his milestones later. And again, mom of two healthy kids, I thought, well, he's just a late bloomer. He'll yeah. walk eventually. And so I didn't push any of that wow. until his symptoms showed up. But it, you know, if it's not a 15-month-old child, if it's an adult, right? If you start having some kind of symptoms, you better be on it. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, you you hear stories of people, you know, having a seizure at the wheel, or you know, they all of a sudden their speech is slurred, and and you know, it could be a lot of things. But you definitely have to advocate on your behalf and mm-hmm. and push your doctors to really find out and drill down on what the issue is. So are there any new discoveries that are for patients or anything to do with brain tumors that have come along lately? Well, I would, I, you know, I'm not a doctor, so it's hard for me to speak in that realm. Um, I will say that, like I said earlier, we, we're discovering more about the structure of the, the tumors sure, and what sure. feeds them and what drives them. Um, as far as, you know, treatments go, you know, there's all different things There's that we've learned about the ketogenic diet. Um, you know, we have our, our standard of care, but as far as finding a cure, we have not found that yet. No, but the research continues, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's going on. And there's a lot of ways to help with the uh, National Brain Tumor Society. If, if you're making donations, I mean, how do you do that? Do, you, do we give right to you or is it better to give to doctors? Is it better to give to hospitals? And there's a lot of questions with that, I would think. So um, one of the unique things about the National Brain Tumor Society is our collaboration efforts um, that we do bring so many doctors and scientists and organizations across the country together to communicate. Uh, if you want to donate to the National Brain Tumor Society, you can go to braintumor.org. Or if you want to come out on June 2nd, we have um, the Denver Brain Tumor Walk. It started around 15, 16 years ago, and I think it was just a few hundred people. And Last year, we, we hit about 1,800 participants um, from the Denver area, and people come as far as Wyoming and from New Mexico, uh, you know. Right, right. So we gather at Sloan's Lake, and we walk and fundraise. Our teams fundraise on our behalf, and all of that money goes toward research, and we have these events all over the country. That walk is big, right, by Sloan's Lake. That's a nice uh, nice walk there, isn't it? It's uh, My CEO said to me that, that and the Bay Area walk kind of rival as far as being two of the most beautiful walks in, in the country. As it should be. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful Colorado. I enjoy it. It, it is. And our company, Bonneville, who uh, is involved with uh, this radio station, are, they're really behind that whole situation. They are our media sponsor. Well, there you go. You can't get uh, much more involved than that now, can you? Yes, Cozy 101.1 is our media sponsor. Well, they're a good station. Kind of, you know, partial to that one myself just a little bit. Can you tell me more about brain tumors and their impact? I know you said it's it's kind of a rare thing, but there there are got to be thousands of people throughout the country that have situations. Yes, um, there are currently 700,000 people living with a primary brain tumor. Um, this year alone, we can expect at least 70,000 to be diagnosed. That's quite a few <clears throat> That's yeah. a, that's a, to me a high number. 
It it is, but it's nowhere near some of the other cancers. So yep. no, well, there are the leading. Say that again. You mentioned earlier the leading cause of cancer-related deaths to kids under 19. Yes. How can that be? Why does it affect that age group so much? Do we know? I don't know the answer we to don't, that. We don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, it it could be a million different things. You know, studies have targeted, you know, your your environment, your genetics. That we, we don't know. That's That's the problem. There's nothing that has proven that any of those factors do contribute to brain tumors in children. That makes research very difficult, I would think. Well, and then, you know, seeing how little their bodies are. I mean, 19-year-olds, maybe not as little as a 15-month-old, but, oh, but still, how little they're fragile they you are. And you put that same of type things. of chemochemicals in their body that you would put into an adult and ask them to tolerate it. I mean, I it's don't know toxic. how that's possible. I mean, my wife went through breast cancer twice, and I saw what chemo did to her yeah. as an adult woman. I can't even imagine. Yeah, little I Luke mean, going through chemo. Luke had like to that. have feeding tubes in his nose because he wasn't eating. He had sores in his mouth that he refused to eat, so he lost too much weight. I mean, big head, like nobody. He lost so much weight. Oh, the poor little guy. Can't even imagine. Do we think the older you get, the chance of you getting a brain tumor lessens? With that nineteen range being so critical, I I don't think so. I think that you know there's no rhyme or reason, and they can, you know, present themselves in someone as old as eighty years old or someone as young as eight years old. Right. I, I, there's again no rhyme or reason to that that we found scientifically. Right. And did they ever talk about causes? Of, you mentioned earlier, Atasha, that it's not really a genetic thing. It's just. The luck of the draw. Just a couple of wonky cells that didn't know what to do. So they joined together and created a tumor. And then more wonky right. cells joined. And the next thing you know, you have an egg in your brain. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way to put it. That's, That's how they explained fact. it. That's how the hospital explained it Is to, that my, right? to Is my that other told To my other two kids. Yeah. There's just a, a rando cell that doesn't know what to do and it doesn't do its job. So it... That's how they explain they, it to kids, but it works just as well to adults. I got that picture really perfectly <laughs> clear. <laughs> Tells you where my mind is yeah. a lot of times. <laughs> but if you can explain it in children's terms, I guess we I'm should be I'm a teacher, to. too. It helps. Well, there you go. <laughs> See, it all comes A mom and a teacher? <laughs> you know, holy cow. I mean, that, that's a fantastic thing. So maybe you can make a little plea here. we got a few minutes left. Why people should give a gift or get involved with the Brain Tumor Society. Let's let's get the pitch out there because it's really been a great awareness. But let's get some active people behind it. Well, I mean, you know, <clears throat> with it being such a rare cancer, it also means that it's underfunded. And, you know, I, I would never discredit any cancer that any person goes through. Um, and I have fortunately been blessed to not have an experience personally just yet with cancer other than, you know, friends and and family occasionally. But I will say that through this job, the last three years, watching what some of these patients go through, um, it has to be some of the worst of the worst. It is absolutely um, painful. It's that's that's the only way to say it. It's painful to watch. It's painful, obviously, to be a part of. But you know these these folks they're they're fighting for their life and you right. know we only get so much money from from congress we only get so much money from private donors you know it's it's a very targeted research that we need to fund 
to to put an end to this disease. You must have a website. We do. Let's talk about that. We have, um, you can go to braintumor.org, which is the National Brain Tumor Society's website. Or if you want to participate in the walk, you can go to um, braintumorwalk.org slash Denver. And that will allow you to register for our walk on June 2nd. Um, also, we have a Facebook page. It's the Colorado Brain Tumor Community. Uh, we're trying to link folks here in Colorado together oh, um, so that they can they can share their stories and their strength and their hope. Um, the, the page is dedicated to sharing our information that we we get through MBTS. We, we post it on there. We post updates about events, um, local fundraisers, things of that nature. Do you have phone numbers that are accessible to the public if they have questions? If you have questions, you can call 423-827-5445. Um, that is my direct phone number. And I represent, you personally answer the phone? Yeah, yeah, I wow. do, I do. Um, I, I represent the, the Colorado brain tumor community, and I'm here to answer any questions that I am able to. Well, congratulations. You guys are doing a great job. Tasha DeCock, Regional Director of the Development of National Brain Tumor Society here. You're involved. You're doing a great job. The, again, the walk is uh, the second? June 2nd at Sloan's Lake Park. Registration um, that morning opens up at 730, but don't wait to register because it's it's twenty five dollars for adults eighteen and older. Um, on the day of, it goes up to thirty five dollars. Uh, children walk for free. Children under eighteen walk for free. And festivities afterwards, you get a t shirt. We have we have t you get a t shirt. All all participants get a commemorative t shirt. We have um, different activities. We have Leslie speaking. And, you know, we, we have snacks and, and lots of fun. Good. Get involved. And Leslie Phelps, thank you for sharing your story about young Luke. Thank you for letting me. Well, it's quite a story, <laughs> and hopefully that will motivate people to get involved and want I to help so. out. Because it's worth it. Because it apparently can help, happen to anybody, the brain Absolutely. tumor situation. Thank you both for coming in today. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Oh, it's my pleasure for sure. And thank you guys for listening. It's Mile High Magazine. Enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll talk to you next Sunday right here. Now. We continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. The Conference on World Affairs celebrated its 70th anniversary at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Originally titled United Nations Week, as it was designed to be a one-time tribute to the birth of the United Nations. Now three generations and ten years later, the event has hosted such luminary newsmaking presenter speakers as First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, the humor of Molly Ivins for 15 years that began in 1984, film critic Roger Ebert hosted Cinema Interruptus for nearly 20 years, former Vice President Joe Biden, entertainer Harry Belafonte, and Apple Computer co-founder Steve Wozniak. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. To be selected a presenter speaker at the Conference on World Affairs, one can truly embrace the descriptor of noteworthy. Rachel Maddow trotted her basketball shoes into the conference just over a decade ago after launching her then-new radio program. On this edition, we caught up with, during lunch, Georgetown University constitutional law professor Susan Lowe Block following her session, Opening the Door to Discrimination. Are we seeing an erosion of anti-discrimination law, or at least the application or the enforcement of such in America these days? I think what we're seeing is uh, a serious challenge to anti-discrimination law. The case currently in the court about the baker who doesn't want to serve, bake a cake for a gay couple, 
is a much bigger problem than a question about a wedding cake. It's the question of, does an individual have a right under the Constitution, the First Amendment right, to discriminate? And that's a, a really profound question, and if the court finds there is such a right, it will undo our anti-discrimination laws. So there's a serious challenge going on that we should all be worried about. Um, you were speaking and you were talking about state-enforced discrimination, or but if you could elaborate on that again, that there's a, a difference between state-enforced discrimination and personal association. I guess you should have a right to associate with or without whomever you want, but whether or not the state can impose di discrimination is a different thing. I think what I, what I was talking about is the notion that the government can't discriminate. So if the government is hiring someone, the Constitution under the 14th Amendment um, says that the government cannot discriminate. On the other hand, in general, an individual can choose with whom he associates. Um, now, where it gets a little trickier is if you have a business such as this baker in Colorado, then we have laws, not the Constitution, but we have state and federal laws that say, if you're a public business, you cannot discriminate. And what's happening in this wedding cake case is this individual baker is claiming, well, no, under the First Amendment, I have a right to say what I want. I have religious freedom to discriminate. And if the court accepts this claim for a First Amendment right to discriminate, that will substantially hurt our anti-discrimination laws. I don't think the court will agree with the baker. I think the court will say, no, baker, you've got to bake this cake, but, I, but we're not sure. Is, is this another one of those challenges to have a religious perception of religious law, Trump, using the word Trump, civil law and what we're supposed to be doing? This is a very uh, substantial constitutional argument for a right to discriminate. And if the court uh, agrees with and finds such a right, it will create a substantial problem for our anti-discrimination laws. It's a serious challenge to our anti-discrimination laws. I read the Second Amendment, but it seems as if the country only wants to read half of the Second Amendment. <laughs> How do we get them to look at the entire Second Amendment? Well, uh, the court up until recently had not really interpreted the Second Amendment, but a few years ago uh, it decided in a case called Heller um, that there's an individual right to bear arms, and they did ignore the beginning of the amendment which says a well-regulated militia. Um, so the court has weighed in on that and has basically ignored that first clause. Do you see them ever going back there or getting a case where they're going to have to interpret the entire Second Amendment? They did interpret the entire Second Amendment and they ignored the first part. Uh, so your question is do I think the Supreme Court might overturn the Heller case? And I guess my answer is no, I don't think they will. So if you read the entire Second Amendment correctly, then the government has a right to regulate uh, what it has to do for public safety reasons or other reasons. 
because everything else is forming a militia. Uh, well, the court in the Heller case um, does provide that governments can regulate um, guns. So um, even though the court held there's a Second Amendment right to bear arms, the court does allow for some kind of regulation. So even though we have a First Amendment right to speak, there are situations where the government can regulate that. So it's not that the government is prohibited from regulating arms, it's just that the existence of the Second Amendment right makes it harder for the, ju for the government to justify regulating. But, but I think if there were a ban on um, assault-type weapons, I think that might be upheld by the court. Because I was thinking as you were answering the question that it's more of not so much of a legal will, it's a political will for them, for us to do something to help kids be safer in schools. That's exactly right. It's a political problem. Um, if we want to ban assault-type weapons from anybody or from at least people under 18, we need the political will to do it. If, if we can get the legislatures to adopt such restrictions on guns, I think the court would uphold those bans. Now, the one thing I, I have to ask you about that I didn't know you did, you were a clerk for Thurgood Marshall. Was there anything Justice Marshall wanted to work on or a case he would love to hear that he didn't get, but he was just sitting there salivating, saying, if we get this one, this is where I'm going? I don't know there were any cases that he was hoping, but he, when he was originally on the court, he had a number of uh, colleagues with him who were in agreement with him. But shortly after he got on the court, there were some new appointments, and thereafter he was more often in the dissent. So I think what he would have liked is a few more colleagues up there who would vote with him, and so he wouldn't have to dissent so much. He, when I, by the time I clerked for him, we, we were often writing great dissents, but they were dissents. They were not majority opinions. Did he, did he feel the gravity of being the only African-American justice on the Supreme Court? He did. He felt it was really important that he make sure that these white folks understood what it was like to be you know, a black guy. And he had lived through, you know, fighting in the South where he couldn't find a hotel, couldn't find a restaurant. He told us stories about sleeping in private people's homes, you know, who opened their homes to him, and he'd have to try and sleep away from the window so he wouldn't get shot. So, I mean, and he made sure that these white folks on the court got a glimpse of what it was like to be a black guy, and even in Baltimore, he would tell stories about being downtown shopping and having to use the restroom and having to go all the way back home because there were no restrooms for him. So um, Sandra Day O'Connor, who was on the court with him, would often talk about how great it was to hear his stories and to be reminded of how tough it was to be a black guy in those days. Final thing I will ask you, what's your fondest memory of him? I know you got a lot of them, but the one thing the rest of us out here could carry away, what it was like or another essence of him we may not know. Um, I have two favorite stories. 
Okay, so one is when he was, before he was on the Supreme Court, he was on the Court of Appeals in New York. And when he got there the first day, just joining the court, there was an electrical outage. And so he's walking and he goes into an office and the secretary says, oh, you must be the electrician. And he goes, no, they'd never let me in that union. <laughs> the other great story, he was, he was really funny, great sense of humor. And pretty modest. Um, and he told the story about one time he was in the, um, in the Supreme Court in the elevator. And it was one of those old-fashioned elevators that was manually operated. So you had to have an elevator operator there. So he's in there, and the door opens, and some tourists come in. And they see him there, and they assume he's the elevator operator. And they go, uh, third floor, please. And he just goes, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and he takes the elevator and brings them to the third floor and lets them out. And I'm sure to this day they have no idea that it was Justice Thurgood Marshall who took them upstairs to the third floor. <laughs> we thank Georgetown University Professor of Constitutional Law, Ms. Susan Lowe Block, for being our guest on this edition from the Conference on World Affairs at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Before we leave you, coming up on Thursday, May 24th, is the Denver Housing Summit Conference hosted by the Denver Office of Economic Development. The summit is organized to connect residents and leaders in the nonprofit, public, and private sectors to discuss policy and strategies to preserve, create, and promote affordable housing throughout the metropolitan area and in nearby regions. Among the sessions at the summit are financing affordable rental housing, preserving affordable housing in Denver's hot economy, access to affordable home ownership, and creating permanent housing solutions for persons experiencing homelessness. Information, the agenda and registration is online at housingsummit at denvergov.org. For persons adversely impacted by high housing costs, a number of scholarships are available to the conference to cover registration costs. Also, registration fees are waived for any volunteers willing to work the event. Again, it's the Denver Housing Summit this Thursday, May 24th, 8.30 a.m. at the Downtown Hyatt Regency Hotel. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay in your game. And we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Melissa Moore. Hi, it's Melissa Moore. Thanks so much for being here on this Sunday for Mile High Magazine. One of my favorite organizations in town, without a doubt, is the Denver Dumb Friends League. A lot of great work that is being done here in the Denver metro area. And so we've got a big day coming up on May 20th. It is National Rescue Dog Day. So, of course, we had to have DDFL in here and Maya Brousseau, who's the PR manager. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. Gosh, my pleasure. You know what big fan, what a big fan I am of the Denver Dumb Friends League. I adopted our cat toothless from you guys. I mean, rescue pets are the best, I think. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes people think when, because an animal ended up in a shelter that maybe something was wrong with that animal or they did something wrong, but 
most of the time it's a person issue. Maybe the person can't afford to care for them any longer, or maybe the person doesn't have enough time for them any longer. And so they end up at the shelter through no fault of their own. And they're great pets just waiting to find new homes. I'm telling you, Toothless, our cat that we adopted from you guys, and you brought him in. I mean, we, he was one of the featured animals that day. And you even said one of your favorite cats. Oh, he's, by far one of my favorite cats that I've ever met at the league. I'm telling you, I never owned a cat before and my daughter and I had been looking and he comes walking in and he's just a big cuddle monster. I mean, he is the sweetest cat. Everybody comes to our house. He's beautiful too. And I didn't realize he's kind of a large cat. He's like 20 pounds. <laughs> he's a big boy. <laughs> Which apparently is large for a cat. I don't it's know. Big. But he just has the best personality and we have not had one issue. Seriously, not one issue. Yeah. And, you know, that that's a great example that you can find really a great pet, a great dog, cat, small animal like mm-hmm. a guinea pig or a rat at a place like our at the Dumb Friends League. I mean, there's so many great animals just waiting to find new homes and you know, that's the great thing about adopting mm-hmm. is that you get to give those animals a second chance. Yeah, there's something special about it. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm telling you, and I've always said this, I've, I've adopted dogs over the years. And I do a lot of mutts and things like that. And they're the best dogs. It's, it's like they know. They know that you just gave them the second chance at a great life. Yeah, they're... It, it's almost like they're thankful. Right. You know, they, they, they know and and they're it's just it's just so rewarding. You just feel so good that you got to go in. It's you know, it's kind of a cool thing to go into the shelter and walk mm-hmm. around, see the different dogs, yep. see the different cats, and then you make that connection and you're like, That's the one for yep. me. And you yep. just know. And it's really fun to do that. You know, it's yeah. a great thing for families to do together. It is. And it you know, again, it's just such a rewarding feeling. Well, and I have to say all the volunteers and the people that work at the Denver Dunn Friends League, we went to the Quebec shelter and everybody was so well-versed. They're like, well, have you ever owned a cat before? I'm like, I have it. Great. Here's some information for you. And then they taught me, okay, here's how we're going to introduce your cat to your dog. I have a big English bulldog. It's like, oh my gosh, how is this going to work? We did everything they said and it was seamless. Yeah. It's, you know, there's a couple things that our our folks do. Number one, I kind of always say that they're matchmakers. Mm -hmm. They're really good about asking questions and finding out what your needs are with a pet. You know, if you want a dog that's going to go hiking with you, that's going to be a lot different than someone who wants a dog that's going to hang out and watch Netflix with them. Right. So we can help you, we'll matchmake and help you find that right pet for you. Mm -hmm. But then also the goal is to set you up for success when you do bring your pet home. Providing resources like you were talking about that will be able to make sure that when your pet gets home, that things are going to go well. But also knowing that if something, if you have some issues after you get home, we're there and we're available. We have a free behavior helpline that's available to anybody. Even if you didn't adopt your pet from the Dumb Friends League, you can still call us and you can make an appointment to be able to speak with a behavior expert that's going to be able to help you through some behavior issues. So we're really dedicated to making sure that it's the right fit mm-hmm. and that when they get home, they're supported and that they are a forever match. Well, one of the things I love is that you guys called to check on us. Yeah. You know, I think it was Thomas. He's like, how's it going? I'm like, good. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I just want to check on you and Toothless and see if we can help at all. I'm like, oh my gosh, how nice is that? Yeah. And that's another way that we really just are trying to make sure that people are set up for success. And if at that that time when you had that phone call, if you said, you know, well, we are having an issue with my dog and my cat getting along and we did the slow introduction, but we need some more, I you know, I have more questions. At that point, they can help you. And again, it, the goal is for it to make sure make sure that this is a forever match. Right. 
Right. And that is so huge. I mean, you think about what these animals have been through and, you know, a lot of them had a loving home and something happened and it wasn't the right fit. And so now they're looking for another loving family. And you do. You want it to be a good fit for everybody involved. Absolutely. Um, As we talk about rescue animals and as we're talking about just the benefits of adopting, what are some of the health benefits? Because I think we all hear and we all kind of know if you've had a pet growing up, like you can have a bad day and come home and hug them and just feel better. But there are physically health benefits to having a pet. Yeah, there I mean number 1 obviously if you have a dog most likely that means you have to get out and exercise with your dog. They need walks, they need exercise. So that is a really obvious benefit. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get out of the house more. I know when I had a dog, I was out on walks a lot more than I do now. I don't I don't currently have a dog and so I'm not out on the bike path taking my dog for a walk like I was previously. So it, there's the old joke that, you know, you can tell that you're not getting enough exercise <laughs> because your dog's overweight. Yeah. <laughs> So true, though. Unless you have a dog like mine that overheats easily. Well, yeah. Those little fat, fat, flat face guys, they have a harder time with it. Or fat face. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) One and the same. Um, Also, though, you know, there are actual proven health benefits. People who own pets have lower triglyceride levels and lower blood pressure. Mm-hmm. from actually interacting with a pet. You know, like you said, you give the, your pet a hug and you feel better. Oh, it's yeah. part of that. You're releasing serotonin, which is that positive uh, brain chemical. Yep. And you actually feel better. You are actually healthier by owning a pet. And they actually say that people who have suffered from a heart attack can actually recover more quickly if they have had a pet in the home because of those same reasons, because you have those lower levels of some of those dangerous chemicals. You're, you're, Uh, bad mood chemicals Mm -hmm. decrease and your good mood chemicals go up when you're in the presence of an animal. I'm the same way. I mean, there's nothing that makes me happier. Even, you know, when I take my dog on a walk, it's it's cool to see. And we have, I have different like elderly people in my neighborhood and they'll see Cisco coming and they get so excited. Mm -hmm. They're like, he just made my day. Yeah. And I get it because I feel the same way. You yeah. know, when I see other people's animals. And I think that's one of the great things about the Denver Dumb Friends League is you have great animals there and not just cats and dogs. We should also mention that if you've got like what else? I mean, hamsters, rats, guinea pigs, mice, ferrets, you know, any of those little small guys, rabbits. Mm-hmm. And then we also have our equine center. So we have horses, too. So if you're looking for a little bit larger of an animal and you've got the space, we've got our, our equine center down in Franktown. So a oh little something for everybody at the Dumb Friends League. I love it. And that equine center is amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. Once again, if you're just joining us, we are talking to Maya Brousseau, who is the PR manager for the Denver Dumb Friends League. Coming up here on May 20th, it's National Rescue Dog Day. And I think Colorado, I mean, we are a dog state. I don't know what the numbers are, but we have to be an animal state because it feels like everywhere I go in the summer, especially in the outdoor patio, there's a dog there. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're very dog friendly. And, you know, another benefit, we were talking about health benefits Mm -hmm. of owning a pet. Another benefit is like, imagine you're new to the area and you have a dog. What a great way to go out and meet new people. You can go to one of those patios or a dog park or even to a place like Wash Park on a Saturday. Take your dog and you'll meet new people. People, they're an instant icebreaker. Mm -hmm. People will approach you to talk about your dog and then you can meet some new folks. It's, they're just, there's so many benefits to owning a pet. And yep. Being here in a dog-friendly area, it's even better. Yeah. And, you know, I've had all different sizes of dogs, and I've had the big labs and the golden retrievers, and I've got the English bulldog now. And one of my girlfriends is huge in fostering pets. 
And I know you're always looking for foster families with the Denver Dumb Friends League. Yeah, you know, we actually cared for more than 2,300 pets in our foster care program last year alone. And it's very, it's a very critical need that we have all the time. We're always looking for foster parents. The cool thing about it is that we provide all of the, you know, anything that you need as far as supplies. So if you're fostering a cat, we'll provide you with the food and the litter box and all of that kind of stuff. If you're foster fostering an animal that's recovering from an illness, we'll provide all the medical all the medications and food and everything else. So there's no cost to you if you're wanting to be a foster parent. And it's a great opportunity to give that pet that little extra time they might need away from the shelter in order to get ready for their new home. Mm -hmm. What are some of the reasons why you you talked about a surgery, but why um, uh, animal would be in foster versus being at the shelter? There's a couple of reasons. One are our puppies and kittens that are too young to be adopted. They'll spend time in a foster home until they're um, old enough to be spayed or neutered and then mm-hmm. put up for adoption. And then the other would be adult animals that maybe just need a little bit of a break from the shelter. And that can be animals that are fearful dogs or overstimulated cats who would benefit from being in a quiet home environment where they can get one-on-one care and training. So we're currently looking for uh, foster parents that will provide care to some of these animals that need that special behavior training and specifically a large breed adult dogs okay. as well as adult cats. Those are, you know, a lot of people want the puppies and kittens Mm -hmm. because they're adorable, of course. But those animals can really benefit from having that break from the shelter and have that opportunity to shine and show Mm -hmm. who they are. A lot of times these animals that come out of foster care, it's really great because we have we have information about how they were inside the home Mm -hmm. and we can provide the adopters with even more information about them. So it's a great opportunity to be able to give back and help Mm -hmm. out get these pets ready for their new homes, but also to be able to get their adopters, let them know more about that animal they're going to take home. So what are some of the qualifications that someone needs to have to be a foster parent? It's really simple to become a foster parent. You can go online to ddfl.org slash foster. You can read more about it there. You can fill out an application. You'll come in for an orientation as well as some training. We'll do an on-site visit. Make sure you have the space that you, you know, Mm -hmm. that you need to have to be able to keep your pet, your pet separate from that pet, depending upon the situation. And then we'll just provide ongoing training. So there's really not a lot of qualifications. You just have to have a love for pets and we'll provide you with any of the training that you need. If for some reason, you know, if that animal is going, recovering from a surgery and they need specific care, we'll provide you with all that training. That's wonderful. And how long of a commitment is it usually? I know it can vary. It really can vary a lot. It can be a for some animals, a couple of days. Some, it can be a couple of months. It depends on two things. One, what the animal needs, as well as the kind of time you have. So say, for example, you have like two weeks available, but you know you're going on vacation in two weeks and you can't care for that animal after that. If the animal needs to stay in foster longer, we'll arrange to get them to a different foster home mm-hmm. after that two weeks. So we're really flexible. We want to work with you because we appreciate the fact that you're giving us that time and you're opening up your home and your heart to this animal. Right. And what a great way to give back. Absolutely. I mean, especially Colorado summers coming up. Get a dog that does maybe need to get outside and get some fresh air and some loving. And what a great thing to do. Absolutely. It's, it's very rewarding. All foster parents will tell you that while it can be really hard to take the animal back mm-hmm. to the shelter oh, and be, say I'll goodbye. Be, I'd be a mess. I know it. <laughs> but they say that it is it is extremely rewarding and they're so happy to know that mm-hmm. they played a role in getting that animal ready for their new home. Right. That's what one of my girlfriends has said. She goes, I cry every time and then I get pictures of the pet with their new family and I cry again because I'm so happy I was part of that journey. Yeah. 
And that's such a cool thing to be able to do. So coming up here on May 20th, it's National Rescue Dog Day, Denver Dumb Friends League. I mean, you can find just, I mean, I found so many different breeds of dogs that you have from, you know, dogs that I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a golden retriever or that's a lab, you know, whatever they meet. And then some of the best dogs are the mutts that you guys have as Mm -hmm. well. We have something for everybody. Yeah. Whether you want a small dog or a large dog, if you want a quiet dog that, like I said, is going to hang out with you and watch movies, or you want a really active dog, dog that's good with children, a dog that maybe is better in a one-on-one situation, but but you're okay with that. I mean, there are so many different dogs that are available and all breeds. You know, we get, we we take in approximately 60 animals a day at the Dumb Friends League between both of our shelters. And so that means we've got a lot of yeah. variety coming through the door. So yeah. you never know what you might find when you go looking on the website or if you come on into one yeah. of the shelters. And like you said, you just kind of know when you meet that dog or that cat, mm-hmm. like I did with Toothless, you walked in, I'm like, that's my cat. <laughs> <laughs> I, it made me so happy. Yeah, there's just something <laughs> special. And I'm telling you, it is the best feeling. Um, before we go, I just want to talk really quick because we are going into summertime. And I have people asking me all the time, hey, I would love to help out at the Denver Dumb Friends League, not just fostering, but volunteering. Are there opportunities? That We always have volunteer opportunities available. And it's really easy. Actually, the foster being a foster parent is a volunteer position. But there's, I believe there's more than 70 or 80 different volunteer positions available all the time at the Dumb Friends League. So we always tell people, go online to the website, ddfl.org. You can click on the volunteer. You can find out information. There are some requirements as far as uh, we ask for people to commit for about three hours a week for about six months at a time. And that is just so that you can get the right training and you know that what what you're doing will have people do everything from walking dogs to cleaning kennels to working with cats that might... Uh, need a little behavior care or some socialization. There are so many different volunteer opportunities and we'll also work with you to kind of match you with an opportunity that you are interested in. Perfect. Well, Maya Brousseau, PR manager of the Denver Dumb Friends League. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And the website again? ddfl.org. All right. Easy to remember. I'm Melissa Moore. It's Mile High Magazine. Thanks for spending the Sunday with us. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine. A look at the issues and people shaping Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.